0: Hey, friends. This episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Merlot University Medical Center. I'm Roanoke. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And on today's episode, we once again are trying to get to the end of this tunnel of our Heme path series. It's been an awesome past couple of weeks, really digging into the nuances of that terrifying, horrifying, extremely scary phone call that I got about uh, understanding the cytogenetics and flow cytometry um, while I was on call a few weeks ago. And so um, I hope that we can continue that conversation today. Guys, I feel like at least for myself, there's been... A lot of anxiety and negative energy um, surrounding this topic, and so to kind of change things a little bit and you know adjust the feng shui, if you will, of of the room, I was hoping maybe we can start with what's one good thing that's happened to you this week, Dan? Why don't you kick us off? Sure.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I was I was traveling this week. I still have my uh, small wound over my nasal bridge where the N95 was digging into me for the whole flight. Um, But my flight didn't get canceled, and I was able to get home uh, unscathed uh, and before the storm hit. So uh, I'm happy about that.
0: Awesome. Hashtag COVID chronicles.
1: Yeah, seriously.
0: (laughs) Vivek, what about you? Uh, So for me, we've been watching
2: Survivor. Excellent show. Uh, And we got through an entire season in like three days. So I think that's a pretty big accomplishment. That's huge. Is this your first time through? Uh, it, you know, I'd seen some seasons before, but the, I, I saw a, particularly a season with a with a Survivor guy named Tony. Highly recommend season 28. Everybody should
1: watch it. Oh, very cool. And also, just for the record, everyone, um, I, I briefly was confused between Survivor and Lost, and that now makes a lot more sense. Okay,
0: <laughs> one's reality, one's not reality.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. They fake all that Survivor stuff. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, I guess for me, my birthday's right right around the corner. I know it didn't happen already, but it's kind of been the thing I've been looking forward to recently. So, um, another year older and maybe another year wiser. We'll see. To be determined. Well, guys, I guess we should dig right into our episode and not keep our listeners waiting any further. Let's go ahead and continue our journey down Path. Hey guys, as we've been doing the last couple of weeks, we've really been breaking down the details of how to look at uh, all this information that comes back after we get, you know, biopsy results. So flow cytometry, we've been talking about karyotyping, we've been talking about, you know, fish and all of these things. And so, you know, I was kind of hoping to continue on that conversation today. And particularly, I was hoping to talk a little bit about molecular testing. Are you guys game? Let's do this. So, you know, at the end of the report, I happen to notice that time that it says, it makes a comment about, you know, come back in a couple of weeks uh, for some more information about molecular testing. And so I just, I guess, first and foremost, like, what are we looking for that's different than what we already know? And, you know, as a follow-up question to that, I hope we can also talk about some of the clinical utility of some of this information that we're seeking. You
2: know, I'm, I'm going to start off with just talking about what's the purpose of molecular testing, and then Dan will get into the specific details about how it's done and what it is. Yeah. So on a broad level, the big thing is to know is that it's PCR testing. So whenever you hear the word molecular, think PCR-based testing, we're, we're now talking about the genotype. So we talked about the phenotype before with flow cytometry and IHC. And in a previous episode, we went over parts of the genotype with cytogenetics. Remember that with cytogenetics, we're looking for larger genetic changes, chromosomal deletions, inversions, translocations, things like that. What this molecular testing is doing for the genotype is we can find much smaller changes. We can find single base pair changes, or we couldn't do that with the cytogenetic testing, whether that be karyotype or FISH. So in this case, with this molecular testing, we can find much more detailed genetic changes, um, and by doing so, we can do two big things clinically. Bucket number one: it allows us to risk stratify patients. So certain gene mutations are associated with higher risk disease. So gives us prognostic information. Another really important thing is that it helps us determine treatment options for patients. It tells us, are there targeted treatment options available? Uh, You know, now, whenever you see some of these commercials, they talk about all of these new drugs and variety of cancers, which are pills. And these pill drugs are basically targeted therapies for specific gene mutations that we can find with molecular testing. Those are the two big, broad categories that is the most important to remember. And then there are some other nuances that we'll talk about throughout this discussion. So, Dan, tell us a little bit about how molecular technique works.
1: Yeah, sure. And I'd love to. We're going to get kind of into the weeds with this one, I think. Uh, it's it's really the only way, only way to go when you're talking about some of this molecular testing. Take it away. Um, so, yeah. So, for single gene uh, assessments, when you're looking at a single region that you just want to amplify and, and you're looking for, and this could be a breakpoint region for a, a hallmark translocation like the Philadelphia chromosome, or something like a, a known gene mutation, a single, single nucleotide change, something like that that you're looking for that's specific to a patient's tumor, this uh, PCR technology works by using an enzyme to amplify DNA. And getting into a little bit more specifics about how that works, you take a sample of DNA, a double-stranded sample of DNA, and you heat it up such that the two strands of DNA melt apart from each other. And then you cool it back down to allow small segments of DNA that are specific to the region of interest that you're looking at. And those will stick uh, on the forward strand and the reverse strand. And, you know, a special thermally stable DNA polymerase comes along and, you know, copies copies the strands from those primers. For translocations, this is something that's super easy to detect with PCR. Because if you create primers uh, where the forward primer is on one chromosome and the reverse primer is on another chromosome. That that DNA will only amplify. It'll only be you'll only be able to get that exponential amplification from the PCR if that that translocation is present. Otherwise, you'll have little fragments of DNA from separate chromosomes, and there will be no way for the the primers to amplify those. So that's that's how we detect that uh, those sort of translocations. If you're looking for a specific mutation, oftentimes. They'll have a patient-specific primer, a primer that it contains the, that region with the mutation in one direction, and then the reverse primer somewhere else from that, uh, you know, downstream of that uh, area of interest. And then you'll amplify that and usually follow it up with a sequencing technique, like like Sanger sequencing, um, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So, what questions do you have so far about about what you just heard about PCR?
0: I I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it kind of brings me back to when I used to be in a lab in college and we were doing a lot of this. And so it's, again, it's very cool to see a clinical application to something that seemed very removed from that. When I was in undergrad, Um, you know, I guess, I guess the one thing that I wanted to clarify from you guys is, you know, this sounds very similar to um, when we talked about things like, like, like fish, Um, And so I was just curious if you could comment maybe what the differences are and how this maybe is useful, but in a different way.
2: Yeah. So I want to highlight a couple of really important differences between fish and molecular testing. We've talked about how both of these are getting genetic information of the genotype. The big thing is with fish testing, you're looking for larger chromosomal changes on the order of thousands of bases. So you need to have... Thousands of bases that broke off and rearranged themselves somewhere else, or thousands of bases that got deleted. Whereas with molecular PCR-based testing, you can detect genetic mutations at the single nucleotide level base pair change. So that's the big difference, is that with FISH techniques, you're looking at larger chromosomal changes, whereas with this molecular PCR-based techniques, you are able to detect smaller changes that you would have missed with FISH technique. I also want to kind of talk about how this is done. So in both cases, you have to know what you're looking for beforehand. So with the FISH technique, you would have the pathologist or the oncologist would request a specific panel of probes to look for characteristic translocations or additions or deletions or inversions that are associated with the disease based on your clinical suspicion. The same thing is true for, mo- for molecular testing. And we'll talk about a couple of examples as we move through this discussion.
0: Understood. Yeah, I really just wanted to make sure that I got that I got that clear because, you know, I don't want to make that mistake when I am on call and need to, you know, call the uh, call the team and recommend a specific test and accidentally order the wrong one. I suspect that there are some clinical implications to making that mistake.
2: Yeah, there are definitely some clinical cases where. Sending the fish versus sending that molecular PCR-based testing can definitely make a difference. And I can think of a couple of examples where I've actually made mistakes uh, myself. And one of the biggest ones is the diagnosis of APL, or acute promyelocytic leukemia. We had talked about in prior episodes that the way to diagnose that is by looking for that translocation 1517, which encodes for the protein PML-RARA on that PML-RARA gene. So if you suspected that, if you had a patient that came in and had DIC and this pancytopenia and had all these blasts and they morphologically appeared to be consistent with acute promyelocytic leukemia, and maybe you got the flow cytometry to get that immunophenotype, and that also was somewhat consistent with... Um, having a diagnosis of APL, you need to know sooner rather than later if that's a diagnosis or not because it majorly changes your treatment plan with the patient and it majorly changes their overall prognosis. So one way you can do that is by sending FISH testing, so having the probe looking specifically for translocation 1517 on the peripheral blood, versus sending molecular testing, single gene molecular testing, looking for an amplification of that PML-RARA gene. And the difference here is that that FISH testing in what I think is most hospitals in the United States, not every hospital, this is true, can come back faster than that PCR testing. So the FISH testing uh, overall just takes less time. And so you can get the answer, yes or no, is this translocation present? The downside, though, is that with this PCR-based testing, it takes longer you can either a get a quantity of exactly how much uh, gene is being uh, amplified for for that PCR change, and then the second big thing is that with fish, you're analyzing about 200 cells in the peripheral blood, so you have to have enough blasts in the peripheral blood to detect this translocation. Whereas with molecular testing, you can you can look at a resolution of about one in a million cells. So you have a, you can identify these genetic changes, uh, at a much higher resolution. The bottom line is that clinically, what we're most focused on is getting that diagnosis as quickly as possible. And when you have somebody coming in with suspected acute promyelocytic leukemia, it, you're better off sending that fish to get the result back faster, especially if you have enough blasts in the peripheral blood to just detect that yes or no change. But again, this molecular testing gives you a much, much more detailed description of what's going on with the genotype. And it's able to sift through many, many, many more cells to find this change. So now you might be wondering, well, when do oncologists, hematologists, and these pathologists order fish? And in what circumstance would they need this PCR-based test if, if, the, if you have this yes-no answer with fish? And there's a couple things. So one big thing, certain diagnoses have very um, specific chromosomal changes that you can look for with these fish panels. And that's all you need for treatment strategy. You might not need the molecular level of detail because we're just not there yet in, in treatment algorithms. But The one major advantage of using this molecular testing, when I said that you could find one in a million cells that has this specific genetic mutation, is that let's say you had this patient with APL, for example, and you had given them, uh, treatment, chemotherapy-based treatment, or, you know, gave them atra-arsenic, you don't even know the details about that yet, and later we'll have a specific episode dedicated to APL. But the bottom line is, you want to know at the end of your treatment, is there any APL left over? Well, you could do a bone marrow biopsy, and you could look and say, is there any little tiny amount of APL left over? But the big thing is, you can find any tiny amount of residual disease, so it's better for treatment monitoring when you use this PCR-based technique. So again, you know the the fish and the and this molecular PCR looking for specific genes they're both useful they're both helpful, but if you're thinking about treatment monitoring you're better off looking at molecular testing which is why you'll see us use the words major molecular response in, in certain diseases like CML or a molecular remission for example in something
0: like APL. Okay, and and you know I know that I know that this may be. The bane of Dan's existence, but is there are there implications and applications to this for solid tumors as well? I mean, I know, for instance, when we talk about lung cancer and things, we talk about you know EGFR mutations and stuff. And so, is this how they're going about assessing for that? Yeah, I'm sorry, Dan, we're going to have to do the the solid tumor plug here. Uh, um,
1: I'll I'll close my ears.
2: Yeah, yeah, close the ears, earmuffs, earmuffs, Dan. So so this is very very applicable to solid tumors and. You, we've all heard of the, of the BRCA mutation, the BRCA mutation, as a big deal. A molecular test will tell you, do I have the BRCA mutation, yes or no. It doesn't necessarily tell you, do I have cancer, yes or no, but it tells you if that mutation is present. The big thing with solid tumors, though, and I'm going to give you two specific examples. One is lung cancer. In lung cancer, there are certain mutations that we have pills to target. One of those is an EGFR mutation. So you can l- take your lung cancer biopsy specimen and look for specifically an EGFR mutation, for example. And if it's present, we have a pill that can target it and patients can not, not have to do chemotherapy. They can take do p- targeted pill-based therapy, possibly less side effects, better uh, treatment outcomes, things like that. So it's, it's very helpful in that sense. Another example is for melanoma. Uh, we, we, you may have heard of the BRAF mutation in melanoma, and we have these BRAF inhibitor therapies that really change the landscape of melanoma that patients who had melanoma that spread all over the place. If they have this mutation, we got a pill for that. Obviously now we have immune therapy and things like that, but, but the big thing is that if you, these mutation testings can allow you to know if you have a, a possible targeted option for that patient, a pill-based option for treatment instead of your traditional chemotherapy. And one more thing I want to reiterate is that you may be wondering, well, who's going to order this testing? This is done by the oncologist uh, and sometimes done by the pathologist reflexively. But the big thing here is that what we can either look for single gene mutations like this EGFR or BRAF mutation, or we can run a panel of tests that Dan will describe about here in just a little bit about how we can uh, really get to knowing multiple mutations at once rather than looking for a single gene mutation.
0: So essentially Vivek what you're saying is that you know these these processes are analogous to both whether you're talking about you know a hematologic malignancy or a solid cancer it's a similar process by which you're trying to just better understand with higher resolution the presence or absence of certain mutations and again for us as clinicians it can potentially change our management approach for our patients. Is that safe to say? That's exactly right. Got it. Okay. And so, I, I guess you know, I, I wanted to switch gears a little bit to a topic that I don't really think that I truly understand. I don't even understand its name. The next generation sequencing portion. I've I've seen reports about this. I hear about this. I feel like every major conference that happens, they talk about. You know, the future of medicine being related to next generation sequencing. First of all, what is it and why do they call it that? Like what is it in reference to or in relation to?
1: Yeah, I can I can talk a little bit about this. Thinking about sequencing in general, you know, the the earliest iterations of, of modern sequencing were probably developed in the 1970s. Um, the the Sanger sequencing is sort of the, the classic one we all learned about in high school bio. And that's, you know, when you see Mulder and Scully on the X-Files holding up those little x-ray films and looking at the, the little bands and all those columns and saying, oh yeah, this is this is clearly alien DNA or whatever. they That's Sanger sequencing. That is um, sequencing that's based on a similar technology to PCR. So you have a, a strand of DNA of interest and you incubate it in a medium that contains very specialized nucleotides. And so they are, instead of deoxyribonucleotides. They are dideoxyribonucleotides. So when they're added to a growing strand of DNA, that DNA can't lengthen anymore. It has to stop. And so those bands that you saw on on those x-ray films are just fragments of DNA that run on a gel. And because they're terminating after each nucleotide is added, you can basically measure the lengths of the strands and and derive a sequence from that. That was modernized in sort of the 90s, 2000s range uh, to basically use fluorescent fluorescent nucleotides that would give off a reporter signal after each cycle. And if you use four different colors for the four different nucleotides, then you can basically detect little fluorescent peaks. And that's what we always saw on like our biochem tests when you would have that little readout of uh, the DNA sequence with the little fluorescent peaks attached to it. Next generation sequencing really is, I I don't like that term so much because it, I think the generation that you're talking about is important uh, and next generation doesn't give you much detail other than it just sounds new and it's easier to abbreviate NGS that you always see on the reports, but I prefer massively parallel sequencing to describe a lot of these modern sequencing techniques. And uh, really this takes me back to some of my earliest um, research experience back in high school. Uh, i was working on a comparative genomics project and it required me to use only Dan. this yeah <laughs> super casual only oh my god i should have been you know out partying or something i realize now in retrospect but uh, i had to play catch up on that in med school but the uh you know th- this project basically required me to use a web tool that was uh, allowed me to sequence or not sequence to align homologous sequences Of DNA. And that was very useful when I'm comparing genomes between gibbons and people and gorillas and all that stuff. But I didn't really understand why everyone else in the lab was so excited about it. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of cool for this project, but like, what's the big deal? It turns out that type of technology, a computer that's able to take a bunch of sequences of DNA and figure out which regions align, which regions are overlapping, is super important and essential for this type of NGS or massively parallel sequencing technology. What happens is a DNA sample is taken and it's broken up randomly into little fragments of DNA. We're talking like 50 to 300 base pairs. And that is then melted down, amplified. It's basically, these technologies all rely on these very proprietary little holster molecules, basically, that attach to these random fragments of DNA and then allow that to attach to some substrate, like like a glass bead or a glass slide, something like that. Those strands are then amplified just to make sure you can get a good signal out of them with traditional PCR. And then a fluorescent type PCR, like we would see in the modified sort of updated Sanger sequencing techniques, um, a fluorescent based amplification process then takes place so that you can see kind of what nucleotide is being added to each of these clusters of amplified DNA fragments. And so all of these, you know, hundreds of millions of fragments are getting sequenced at the same time with each cycle. Uh, each time they're building, You know, it's, it, there's an image being taken and all those sequences are being generated. And a computer then takes those tiny little fragments and lines them all up to eventually create a coherent and complete sequence of the genome. Um, it's an incredibly sophisticated and kind of cool technique. It's, it's tricky because obviously you're depending on aligning these little fragments. so. Uh, there's some redundancy that's required to make it reliable. A lot of the these regions of the genome, especially the important ones, if you're doing exome sequencing, are going to be sequenced many, many times over. You know, many fold in depth of sequencing they would say, and so that's that's pretty cool. There are also technologies that allow DNA from different sources to be sequenced at the same time. They can multiplex samples from different people and and sequence them all at once, and it allows for a lot of efficiencies uh, that allow for us to sequence genomes, entire genomes in, you know, a week instead of 10 years, like it took us to do the first time with basic Sanger sequencing. So really exciting technologies. Uh, one major pitfall for it is that you cannot really determine accurately the length of sections of large nucleotide repeats. Um, so you know, these NGS uh, technologies are not optimal for doing that. There are other things we can do to assess those. In general, when we see NGS, you're talking about massively parallel computer, uh, computer-based sequencing.
0: It sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie. It's pretty cool. It sounds like X-Files. It totally yeah, it is. Definitely <laughs> sounds like X-Files, but Dan, I want to, I want to highlight that last part that you had mentioned though. So you said a week because of this tremendous amount of, of work and data analysis that has to happen for each individual sample that's sent over.
1: Yeah, and, you know, there are ways to sort of increase your efficiency. A lot of times we aren't doing whole genome sequencing or even whole exome sequencing when we're doing um, this sort of molecular testing on specific tumors. Like We already have a pretty good idea of what the diagnosis is. We know that there's a, a fairly circumscribed number of genes we need to look for for risk stratification or for treatment planning. And so a lot of these panels will basically only look for a certain number of genes. it'll They'll sequence a certain number of known genes that are implicated in these things. And so that can help a little bit in terms of how long it takes to do these tests. But ultimately, these are technologies that are not available widely. It's not something that we're running PCR in our own labs here. We're sending them out to other companies. They're batching them, running them with many, many patient samples at once to increase sort of operational efficiency and, and reduce cost. And you know, as a result, we do end up waiting often two weeks to get these results back.
0: And you know, I think what I keep reading more and more about, and I think this is again very exciting and almost kind of X filey, is just the fact that there's so much more that we don't yet know, or that we're still continuing to learn about the role of sequencing. I feel like there's going to be a lot more coming down the pipeline, and uh, I'm not sure what you guys have heard if you agree with that statement, but it certainly seems like this is an opportunity for us in medicine, especially as we all try to move towards this idea of like personalized medicine and, you know, trying to make sure that we're, that we're tailoring our treatment approach for each individual patient. That's absolutely
2: right. And, you know, we're hoping that these processes become more and more and more efficient so we can get an answer faster and faster. And that, that'll happen with time, I'm sure, as, as all technologies do. But what you said is exactly right. You know, right now, if we exactly what Dan is talking about. So when we started this conversation with molecular testing, we were talking about single gene molecular testing, meaning I have a lung cancer specimen and I'm looking for EGFR mutation, or I've got this leukemic cell and I'm specifically looking for that uh, uh, PML-RARA PCR change. And those are are done much more quickly because you don't have to do all this parallel sequencing, but at the same time, you're only looking for that single mutation. You're not looking for all of the possible mutations that could happen with lung cancer. And now if you look at the past decade for let's just take lung cancer, for example, the number of targetable mutations that we have is insane and it's changing like every month, almost, you you know, it's, it's almost like we go three months and there's a new drug out and there's a new targetable mutation. And so as we do all of the sequencing, we have a lot of information, get a lot of different mutations. And the big question is one, can we target it? And two, let's do this informatics research to say with this gene expression profile, these sets of mutations, what does that mean for prognosis, and how does that predict outcomes to specific treatments? And that's where the field is heading in the future. And we already see that in some diseases. Uh, for example, for AML or acute myeloid leukemia, certain molecular mutations changes your risk profile and it'll change your treatment approach and treatment strategy, change the conversation you have with patients. And, and so it's it's a really big thing that's happening within both heme malignancies, and solid
0: tumor malignancies. That's really awesome. And I knew when I was getting into this career or thinking about this career, I knew there was going to be a lot of changes, but it's it's fascinating and kind of exciting to definitely be kind of at the forefront as all of this is happening. I'm very curious to see where this even goes by the time I'm done with fellowship. Well, guys, I, I want to thank you as always for just shedding so much light on this topic. I really feel like I'm at least again, walking away, having learned so much that I didn't previously know, you know, I, I, I feel like looking back at the last couple of weeks as we've sat down and, and gone through the nuances of, of these reports that we look at, just how much information is in there, how much valuable information is in there. If one only takes the time to try to extract that information. So I want to thank you as always for sharing all of that with me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I've I've got my take-home point and I'm going to let
2: Dan have his take-home point for the molecular testing. So one thing I have to say is that anytime you guys look at these molecular report panels or these NGS large sequence panels, just remember risk stratification and targeted treatments. Do we have a targeted treatment for this? And those are two important things to remember. The last thing I want to say is that for blood cancers for any of these hematologic malignancies, we can look for the tiniest amount of residual disease with this PCR-based testing. So if you knew, for example, that a leukemia that had that translocation 922, that Philadelphia chromosome that has BCR-ABLE, that that's the PCR mutation you're looking for, if you wanted to see, is there any, any tiny, 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 tiny amount of that cancer left you can run a PCR for that BCR-ABLE to look for a tiniest amount of residual disease, which helps with your treatment planning, treatment monitoring, things like that. We talked about that with flow cytometry, that you you can find a needle in a haystack. This is like finding a needle in a haystack that's as tall as the Empire State Building. that That's the resolution that you're getting with this uh, PCR-based technique.
1: Yeah, my, my takeaway point is much less relevant and, and much more simple uh, and that's if you or anyone, you know, is, has ever done this, uh, any of these cheek swab kits that you can send in and, and get your DNA sequenced, you officially have no right to ever complain about Apple or Google uh, taking away your private information because you already just gave out the most private thing about you to uh, to some company and, and God knows what they're doing with it. Um, so just don't, don't do that. What are you doing? Just if, you, if you're if you giving your DNA away to somebody, make sure you're getting something really good in return. <laughs>
0: You get a family a family tree, Dan, or something like that. I've never done one, but I think that's what they promise you. Call your grandpa. (laughs) Spend (laughs) some party time with grandpa. (laughs) (laughs) All right, gentlemen. Well I think that wraps up another episode of The Fellow on Call. Until next time, see you guys later. Peace out.
1: Later.